Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Jack podcast. You know what I'm about to say and you're probably going to skip forward 30 seconds but I'm pleading with you not to. It's been a difficult few months in terms of people chipping in and keeping this show on the road but it's been a huge month in terms of the new people who are listening. So if you're one of the new listeners and you like what we do and you want to stick around, help us stick around. Join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis and you get access to our entire back catalogue of over 1,300 podcasts covering just about everything that you've ever wanted to know about. Entirely plea-free and ad-free and sponsor-free. And by joining us, you'll be helping us to keep it free for everyone. Independent media matters now more than ever. Yes, we're unapologetically of the left. No, that doesn't float everybody's boats. But you know what? The right has enough outlets and platforms out there to get their message across. So let us do our thing. Help us keep going. Help keep these mics on. And the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. One more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now enjoy the podcast hi folks and welcome back to the third part of our live at the sugar club show from thursday the 20th of july uh, coming up you will hear from martin mcmahon the two lads roman and owen from the ditch and they will be joined on stage by a very special guest the department of health whistleblower shane core you may remember him as the guy who brought to light the events on the nursing home overcharging scandal and the monitoring of families w- with autistic children um this is the last part of the show, and so you will also hear then the Q&A session that took place at the end. We're all panellists from the evening, including myself, Sam McElwain, and Emma D'Souza, returned to the stage to answer questions from the audience. Thanks to everybody who came. It was a fantastic evening. Thanks to the Sugar Club again for hosting, and we will be doing it all again very, very soon. So if you missed out the last time, just grab the tickets. I will be notifying patrons first, and you'll get the details as soon as I confirm the dates. And now it's over to Martin. Yeah. I, I'm going to tell you a bit about Shane before we go. Shane is a civil servant. Shane is an upstanding civil servant who saw things wrong and then decided to speak up, which is what civil servants are meant to do. And Shane has gone through processes, and there are so many processes for whistleblowers. Peter Bean is sitting here in the audience, and it was Peter Bean... Two years ago, just about two years ago, Peter was in touch and said, we got to set up a whistleblower group because we all have these individual experiences, but when we put them together, we might see something different. And Shane is now part of the whistleblower group. So, and Shane is helping us greatly to see things differently, but you're getting a lot out of the whistleblower group too, Shane. There's a lot Absolutely. of stuff. It, it really is a game changer for whistleblowers, the whistleblower group. Tell us a bit about what you've done, Shane. Start with if you wouldn't mind, the DPC. Okay, so last week, some of you may have noticed that, uh, last Monday actually, that the DPC found against the Department of Health that the Department of Health had been gathering information on autistic children and their parents. Now, what was special about this was these autistic children and their parents had entered into litigation against the state because they weren't getting their constitutional guarantees on education and health. And what the Department of Health decided to do was um, to find out as much as they could about these children and their parents and their siblings. And they went out to um, doctors, um, CAM services, CAMS is um, child and adolescent mental health services. They went out to other HSC clinics 
to covertly gather information on these children and their families and parents without the knowledge of those people. And what they did was they circulated um, a document to these organisations saying, we're in litigation with these people. Can you tell us anything that would help us with this, with this litigation? But please don't tell the parents, their solicitors, or the children themselves. And the, the purpose of this, Shane, was to wear them down, wear them out. So the purpose of this was to push these people as far down the track as they possibly could. And what they did, Martin, when they um, gathered this information was they entered it into spreadsheets and they used these spreadsheets as a decision tree in terms of the litigation. And what you've just pointed out is right, because one of the categories was sleeping dogs. Yeah. Okay. So they had a category um, for these children where they knew they couldn't win the case. They absolutely knew they couldn't win the case. And what they did was they analysed these cases in terms of the information they had received. um, And they had this sleeping dogs category. And the sleeping dogs category basically meant that um, don't trouble trouble until trouble troubles you. Um, And by by the way, these are children who are only looking for their constitutional guarantees. In terms of education, um, I was appalled by this. Um, and these are a tiny few people. These were 48 children and their families. Um, I'm, I'm going to switch a little, Shane, and I'm going to ask you, what was your experience of mainstream media trying to get this story out there? I mean, as a civil servant, it's difficult to get a story out. And I want to compare the experience you had to the way the guys would deal with somebody who comes with something like this to you. Okay, so what happened was um, I asked to make protected disclosures at work. Um, it took a long, long time. Eventually, the department brought in um, a very eminent senior counsel, a barrister called um, Conlet Bradley, who'd worked for the state. And it was actually the guy who made the official apology to um, Joanna Hayes, the, mm-hmm. the Kerry Babies um, lady. Um, so I made protective disclosures to him. He decided there was nothing to see here, which is rather odd given what happened last Monday with the DPC. Yeah. He decided there was nothing to see here. And what I was saying, I, the, the overwhelming um, finding of Connolly was that I didn't understand litigation. Of course I didn't understand litigation. I'm not a feckin' lawyer. Um, but it's also, I mean, the things that happened to you, the Public Accounts Committee wouldn't hear you, which is pretty damn awful, and it was damn awful. And and you were called uh, you, from one of the members of the Public Accounts Committee, literally said that what you'd done was wrong. Yeah, so... I wrote I wrote a T-shock about this, um, and of course it went all around the houses. It went from T-shock to deeper. I don't know how something like that went to deeper, but it did. Um, it then went back to my own department without me ever knowing about it. Um, I wrote to the um, the children the the, the uh, ombudsman for children. And In fact, he, he went, sent back my email yeah. to the department without telling it me. It was this circular... Actually, let me just bring in Roman there for a second. Roman, you and I talk legal things every now and again. If you had Shane come to you, as, and you're, you're independent media, and you have Shane come to you with a story like this, what kind of approach do you take to that? 
Well, I suppose, like, I, uh, just to go back to the story itself, like, um, I remember reading the story and thinking at the time that this is going to be huge, like, this this is the sort of stuff, like, that, you know, should bring down a government, yes. nearly. Do you know what I mean? But it didn't. I, I was surprised that... It, it didn't get as enough. Uh, sorry, it didn't didn't get as much um, media coverage as it should have gotten. Like, I mean, it's an absolute scandal. Like, it's it's one of one of the you know in the past couple of years one of the worst stories that I've heard. Like that the state was uh, gathering information in a way, the way in which they did um on on children on children with you know things like autism and i one of my kids is autistic and i was just disgusted when i read it like and as as shane said like these are very very basic services that people are looking yeah. for and you know i i i just can't believe that the story uh you know hasn't um and it, Owen, it, it, it should be it it should have gotten a lot more media like a, coverage i think it, it, and i don't mean to be disparaging in any way but on a scale of of you know collins to this this is is a gargantuan story and it's gargantuan Owen, do you understand why it doesn't get the purchase do you understand are we so inured to corruption that we just allow it to happen we're just not bothered yeah, I mean, you know, personally, um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, Ireland is more or less corrupt than your average, you know, like Western liberal democracy. I think that, I do think that each, you know, each, like every country has its own particular form of corruption that um, is a result of the material conditions in that country and, you know, like that country's history. I think that this kind of thing and the kind of stories that we've covered ourselves that haven't, you know, that have gone unpunished, I think, does speak to the certain kind of, if you want to call it corruption, that is more prevalent in Ireland than elsewhere. This kind of thing, like, you know, to be, not to be too simplistic about it, but the kind of, you know, ah, shirts sure, grand kind of thing, mm-hmm. like, you know, which is, you know, a result of a whole lot of things, you know, like, I, I, I do think it's partly because of, um, you know, like, look, because of our history with um, colonialism, like, that we don't necessarily have, we're not going to have the kind of corruption that you'll see in the US or Britain, like, the kind of thing, like, say, like, um, do you know, like, Nancy Pelosi and mm-hmm. how much she's yeah. earned from stocks? Like, Ireland doesn't have a financial industry, so we're not going to have that kind of corruption, like, you know, partly because of our history of colonialism. Um, so, and then I, I also think partly as well because Ireland is so small as well, like, and certainly, like, look, political and media circles, like, you know, it's not the same kind of people, you know. Come back to you, because you worked, you work in the civil service and you are suspended at the moment you're still under a disciplinary process how was the support from colleagues and i think this is important when you stood up did you have colleagues going good man it's about time somebody stood up and said this stuff or were you ostracized um so there's types of ostracization um and some of them are easier to manage than others. But the easiest type of ostracization to manage is, this guy is harming us all. Okay? Yeah. I mean, and that's what happened with me. Within a week of the RT program going out, 
um, my duties were, and the duties of a civil servant, I can tell you, aren't great. They're not odious. They're not particularly stressful or pressurised. But my duties went down to about an hour a week of work um, after that. But, you know, what was remarkable to me in, in terms of the story that stories that the ditch are trying to tell was that before the RT programme went out, um, according to Shane Phelan of um, the Irish Independent, the, um, the Secretary General of um, the Department of Health, who's Robert Watt at that time, contacted um, D. Forbes and told her that the information that I had supplied to her was in breach of the Official Secrets Act. Now, whatever about um, threats of defamation, as any civil servant will be able to tell you who has signed the um, Official Secrets Act, breaking the Official Secrets Act can carry a sentence of seven years mm-hmm. um, with it. And for Secretary General to make those claims is remarkable. But I'll tell you something more remarkable. A week later, um, the Department of Health was in front of a, the Health Oroctus Committee. And when Robert Ott was asked about RTE and the programme, he said this. He said that he hadn't been forcible enough in terms of stopping RTE broadcasting this. And he described these um, allegations as being grave and very serious. And he was right, they were grave and very serious. But what worries me is that Robert Watts somewhere had in his back pocket something more forcible than the Official Secrets Act um, and threatening people in terms of the Official Secrets Act, um, which I find remarkable. And further light for me was shed when, when I broke other stories in terms of um, the nursing home charges and other matters. Um, I know from journalists that journalists were told that their revenue streams, and this is where these guys come in, yeah. that their revenue streams and other sources of income were threatened, not indirectly or implicitly, but very directly. And direct reference was made to government advertising, to um, some media. Do you find and that shocking, Roman? I shouldn't, but I do. Just let, let me ask Roman, do you find that shocking? Not really, no. Um, and I actually wanted to make that point earlier on about funding. You know that people were talking about our funding. Open the Irish Times, it's full of advertisements from various different government departments, government agencies, and the property industry. That's how they're funded. But it, to, to think that that's honed then as a weapon against a whistleblower. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not surprising, like, I mean, and it's, it's kind of, um, it's disturbing, like, that, you know, Robert Watt can just pick up the phone to D Forbes, like, and say, look, you know, this, this is what I, like, if, if Robert Watt rang us and started talking about the official secrets, I actually just tell him to fuck off. Yeah. But, but that is the, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get to this, the difference between traditional media and independent media. And first of all, independent media can move a lot faster, uh, an awful lot faster. But you guys fact-check a lot, and I know you do an awful lot of fact-checking. Once you'd fact-checked a story, like Shane's, you'd just print. I take it you just print. That's it, just print. There's no phone calls from Robert Watt. There's no threats of advertising. Does that make you a more open and better media than the traditional media? Um... I think the fact that we have better stories makes us better than, than the 
establishment media. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, there are certainly lots of benefits to kind of working the way that we do. Yeah. And um, I think more than anything, look, I mean, in a country like Ireland, what you're looking for is as pluralist a media industry as possible. You're also looking for as as literate a like a people as well. I, I think it would be great if everyone kind of applied the same scrutiny that they do to places like the ditch as they do to the Irish Times. Like as Roman is saying, like, you know, there's this tendency for everyone to become a media theorist when it comes to someone like us without kind of going like, oh, fuck, there's like a lot of government ads in the Irish Times. There's a lot of property ads here. Like it'd be great if everyone could apply that same scrutiny. And yeah, certainly, broadly speaking, I would say, yeah, the more media literate people are and the more diverse a media industry is, I think, the better for everyone. Shane, I just come back to you. You, When you went to break the big story, you went for RTE. And you went for RTE and you were in the, the Irish Daily Mail as well. What made you go for a publication like that, we'll say, or, or RTE, over something like The Ditch, over the guys in The Ditch? Is it is it simply reach? Um, it wasn't simply reach. I suppose um, I grew up in Ireland in the 70s where... I mean, there was three or four channels, and that's if you were in Dublin. There, yeah. might, there might have been only two in the rest of the country. But RTE was, was one channel, um, and that's, that's, they're the people I trusted. And actually, RTE did a very good job in, um, in what I choose to, to tell them and the information I choose to, to give them. But I think in, in future, and I do have more to say, it will be more like these guys. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what they're doing is unique. I think it's special. I think what we saw in the doll um, not so long ago when the Tarnashta made a very personal attack on these guys, and I go back to what R- Robert Watt did with D Forbes, I think that very personal attack on the ditch happened because the Tarnashta couldn't order a sec gen, you know, to ring these guys and tell them, get lost, you don't have a story, go away. He knew that wasn't going to work. And I think um, the Tarnister and other politicians are very worried about people um, like the ditch. Um, and that's why they try to convince us that the ditch have an agenda. But there's one thing I'll say to all of you. If ever anybody comes to you, a, a journalist or a media organis- organisation, and says, we don't have an agenda, or we're impartial, Run a mile from them. I mean, that's just nonsense. <laughs> Who doesn't have an agenda? Who is impartial? It just doesn't simply make sense. And um, I think these guys are great. What they've done, I think... Um, you know, um, I'll just say this. Um, a long time ago, um, Daniel Anwa, who's um, a music producer, producer and a musician, he's worked with you too, he was asked... Um, what, what one of the great albums was, and he named a debut album from The Velvet Underground, The Velvet Underground, and somebody pointed out that The Velvet Underground album only sold 30,000 copies in the first five years, and Daniel Lanois pointed out that that may be so, but every one of those 30,000 who bought the album went out and started their own band, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to get people to emulate the ditch, and... Um, bring it on and to really do something special in Ireland. And from what we've seen in the last week's RTE, we need that. 
and the feeling is very much mutual. Like you're like, ah, like all of your work is just incredible, like just amazing stuff. And I would like to say about Shane, it takes real balls to be a whistleblower. It really does. It really does. I mean, I, I know I see in this room, Peter. Brilliant whistleblower, utterly brilliant whistleblower, and we work with utterly brilliant whistleblowers, brilliant, brilliant people. But the stress, and I think this is common, and I think this is common, Tony, you, I, the stress of having to deal with people who so want to undo you, personally want to undo you. That's difficult. And Shane, you've had an awful lot of that. The guys have had a taste of that, Tony. You know you've had a taste of that. And I don't give a shit. They're always trying to undo me. You know? <laughs> you, you've the added advantage going, you know, fuck cancer, so fuck all y'all. Yeah, yeah it is. It Martin, is very I just, much. I was just going to say that, like, an important thing to mention is that people like Shane aren't paid to no. do any of this. Like, that, we're, we're paid. We get paid for doing what we do. People like Shane could just keep their head down, do their job, and you know, go into work and not have any hassle. But he, he chose a different road. And like, well, like, I, not, like nearly every whistleblower, whistleblower in the country, he's punished for it. It's, and it is funny. And I, just a little aside, Tony, and I'll, I'll give it over to you then. With the RT stuff, when I started doing, and you know me, four o'clock in the morning, 20 tweets. Since I started doing that, the amount of RT people who are only too willing to stand up and be listened to, that have come to me and said, well, there's nobody in the unions listening to us. There's nobody, there's nobody helping us. Um, will you tell us what's going on? And that's what's happening. I mean, it's not that these people aren't out there. They simply are, but there's no outlet. There's no, I mean, people can ring the ditch. People can do what Shane does. And what Shane does is not easy. It's really not easy. You want to be prepared and you want to be tough as hell for it, you know. But I really think that there are so many people out there that need the ditch that need you to be a whistleblower, that need me to fuck RT out of it. <laughs> they need us to do it because it emboldens people to do it themselves. And I think so. I definitely think so. Tony, over to you, buddy. No, listen, I, I just want to say on, on, the, on the wider context of this, like I'm, I'm conscious Noel McGree's not here. Noel McGree is, is, is another whistleblower who, who lost his career in, in the prison, prison service because he blew the whistle. Noel McGree told us a story about um, how a certain call would go out on radios and what they meant was someone's attractive spouse or girlfriend or partner was coming to visit and they would make that person go, Martin, into a room and it would say, was you have to strip down yeah. and all of the other prison officers would watch on CCTV as this person had to disrobe. Noel McGree gave a pr- protective disclosure to the Department of Justice who sent it to the prison where he was working, <laughs> totally betraying his confidence. Then it went back and he made a second protective disclosure because he was so pissed off at the time to the Taoiseach, who at the time was Leo Varadkar in his first term, who sent to the Department of Justice who it was, it was about. Yeah. And yeah, he yeah. lost, his career was just ended. And that is the price we pay. And it's, it's, it's so frustrating because these stories, as, as, as Roman said, like Shane, you've no idea um, how much of an impact you've had on Irish society by just telling those 
truths, just telling those truths. Um, I've spoken to politicians across the spectrum who all go, you know, that what happened in, in the relation to the HSE is just is phenomenally wrong. And yet you were the only one who stood up because you had this thing inside you that said, but you're still suspended. You're still not at work. You're still paying the price for it on a daily basis. And we can't, not, we can't lose sight of that. And that's why when we say this about doing tonight, events like tonight, and we talk about independent media and, you know, you all get annoyed. You're all skipping forward 30 seconds as Tony's going to ask us to join us on Patreon. That's why we do it. Because we need your help. Like, because we want to have those, we, we want to have those conversations that D Forbes won't have. You know, let's tell the truth. And, and we know it won't have. So thank you to everybody here. Thank you to all of you who've come, but we're not finished. We are going to open up the floor. And, and Sam and Emma, if you, would jo- if you would bear with us, if anybody has any questions for either Roman, Owen, Shane, Sam or, Sam or he Emma. He won't say me. He won't say ask no. him about RTE. <laughs> you can read his thoughts tomorrow <laughs> if you're mad enough. Um, but if anybody has any questions, throw your hands up. I'd be delighted to... Uh, Mero, Mero, the living legend, fresh, fresh off his, his journey to Helsinki. Reykjavik. Iceland, Tony. Uh, question to the ditch. Um, the place is obviously a corrupt kip, so is there, like, is there plans to expand with more people to help you? Yeah, and he might be actually here this evening. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. Um, we've got a guy called Paulie who's been who's been doing opinion pieces with us for the last while, and Paulie's gonna be coming on board full time uh, come September. We're gonna do a print edition as well in the next. Uh, for now, a once-off print edition. Hopefully, in the next month or so. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if there's a spice bag involved in the print edition with his spice new collective. Going to be involved in that print edition. Spice bags here as well. Um, <laughs> so yeah hopefully um yeah yeah look hopefully all going well yeah we're have a little bit of expansion in the next while Bernard you troublemaker caveat everything know that this is a PVP mad month no I'm not sure I just the ditch brilliant uh, first time meeting Martin but it's Shane I want to just uh, say a few things because Shane, we, we follow each other on Twitter. Uh, I do a lot of stuff. I, we, I have the Access for All Ireland campaign. We do a lot of stuff, disability, inclusion, inequality, and all that kind of stuff. And we follow you, like, really, really to detail. And it's really interesting because the particular issues you've raised and highlighted, it's amazing how many journalists have said to us, you know, there's something going on, there's something there, uh, but we don't know what it is. And all the mechanisms of the state seem to just turn and shut it down. There's been, you know, ongoing issues up up the north with people with disabilities hidden away. It's the one thing. But let me tell you, the families are emboldened by what you've done, coming out, shining that light. It's really important. And you're not alone in that we really admire you for doing it. It helps us. And uh, I just want to say that to you, that it's really important to, I'm the father of a child with disability, for people to stand up and highlight this gross inequality, the way the state just treats, I'm not going to say the most vulnerable, because they're not, but the people that need us the most like that. And fair play to you. Moving around. 
Yeah. Just to piggyback on what was said there, um, to, to Shane, I'm an autistic adult myself. Um, I'm 24. My sister's autistic as well. She's 16. And it's uh, 17. And um, it's terrifying to me that, you know, um, our family... 47? Uh, 48. 48 um, young people who have been um, dossiered like this. It, it, it's terrifying. And I just want to thank you so so much because what what you've done is so so necessary and so important and um the the influence you could have on on so many people who would, who would do a similar thing it's just like myself just speaking for myself i'm forever in your death for just you know do, doing exactly what you've done for my community and uh, people like myself so thank you so so much Shane. and thank you very much Anyone else? Are we are we gonna are we gonna call it a night, folks? Other than um, the fact that we've to separate Emma and Sam because they're gonna have a straightener outside. I think we'll. Oh, we've we've. Do you want? We've we've two more. Uh, yeah. Um. I just have a quick question. Like the on, the onboard Planola story to me is a much bigger story than the RTE story, and it just obviously got. It seems to like disappear. Like people don't realize that serious consequences have happened because of that story that you broke. Um, so, like, I know you break more stories as they come on, but do you ever think of revisiting the stories that you've you've broken because the consequences have you know they're coming to pass now? So, it's a really good point. I think there people could do it almost a, a consolidated version of what what happened there because it's it needs to be told in in the round. Yeah, I, I, I think we might um, come back to it at some stage. But, I mean, I think, like, the government have... Um, and this often happens, like, that you expose um, issues in an organisation and what the government does then is they actually introduce legislation that makes it even more difficult to challenge um, th- those bodies. And that's what we've seen now, but where it's going to be extremely difficult to challenge um, on-board Panala decisions by way of judicial review. Um, and, I mean, that, that happened in the... Uh, similar happened with the assessment of needs um, for, for kids with disabilities, where there was loads of cases were taken um, uh, on the assessment of needs, the fact that they weren't being done within the, the correct time period. And then what the government did was they, or the HSE, they actually introduced an even worse assessment of needs for, for chip process for children. So I think, you know, that's like we've done our job. It's up to the opposition now to, you know, to, to pick up the, the, the ball or whatever and, and, you know, continue with it. But as far as we're, we're concerned, like we've, we've done our work. We've exposed a lot of wrongdoing there. There's only so much we can do. The opposition has to step up and, you know, carry the flame. Just one, just one thing on that. Are you, are you in the pay of Fred Loke? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for anybody who's out of the loop, Fred Loke was blamed, wasn't he? For, he was like, Fred the, Loke is this excellent, excellent solicitor who does the environmental stuff. And he's what, really what, was, what was the phrase they used? They said so... He was an activist. No, no, no. no. I want to be very clear what it says is um, planning permissions are simple. You apply, the appeals go in, everybody gets to, to lodge their appeals, and after, after a deliberation process, Fred Logue wins. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we have one more question. Yeah, thanks. Um, 
This is, I suppose, aimed towards uh, Sam and Emma. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm getting you to turn around here now. Um, how likely do you think it is that future generations in, in, in Northern Ireland won't hold the same convictions that the people who are in, in there do now and won't you know, argue in the same way for you know, green versus orange, if you want to be simplistic about it, and just want to get things right up there? Like, do you think the whole kind of dichotomy will kind of die down over time and the, the people who aren't even born yet just will kind of think, what were those, all those guys just arguing about before? And, you know, I know we're relatively, relatively recent since the Good Friday Agreement, but those guys who aren't even born yet, do they just think, can we just get things right here and not have to worry about, as I say, green versus orange? Is it not like... Well, I can speak from the experience that I have within my community. Um, and after the Good Friday Agreement, they would have said, yes, those green and orange issues have died. But what I'm seeing now is the next generation coming through and they're being hardened. I mean, there, there, there's a lot more militant young people within those communities. Now, the numbers aren't great, but we know it doesn't take a great number of people to cause chaos. And it spreads. So that's why we need to be looking at what we do next and how we can create jobs and education to give them another path, to give them a way out. And we're not. And we're, we're putting them in the housing estates and we're ring-fencing them and we're keeping them in there. And what we're actually doing is creating an environment for this to blossom. And at some point, that will come out of sight of that estate. And those estates, wherever they may be in Northern Ireland, it, it takes one person to pull a trigger. It takes ten people to hijack a bus and set it on fire. It takes one mistake to start it all off. We need to be careful where we go with this. But up until this point, I would have said, yeah, those those deep-rooted sort of feelings within that community had had edged off. We, we got more positive, we welcomed, we spread our wings. Um, I have children who have friends all over Belfast and don't give a shit where the peace lines are. But that is starting to change again. Um, and there's a lot of work being done by community groups. And again, as Emma said earlier on, it's people on the ground who are doing the work. It's not those that we entrust to look after us or to guide us or to make our lives a bit easier. We're having to do the work again ourselves. And we're having to now tell these kids, this road that you're on goes to this place and we've been there and it's not a pretty place to be. Um, so, yeah, as much as I would love to give you a message of hope, uh, I'm not, but I will say that work can be done and we can go back again to where we were getting 10, 15 years ago. Outlook than uh, Sam on this one. Um, I did a series of interviews with young people um, over the Good Friday Agreement, um, and I found that the viewpoints and priorities for the Good Friday generation are very different from their parents and grandparents. Um, they were focused on issues around social justice, around education, around opportunities, around employment, um, and there was also a number of young people that I interviewed who came from a unionist or, or loyalist background and who were really frustrated by this this sort of narrative that because of where they came from they had to vote a certain way or they had to think a certain way and they were bucking against that. I think education is a real key component here um, and the reality is is that young people in Northern Ireland actually don't learn about the Good Friday Agreement or about the Troubles. The Good Friday Agreement does not form part of the core curriculum, neither does the actual conflict that still ripples across our society. Um, young people who take the history module um, will perhaps, maybe, be given 
some history lessons on the Troubles, but the schools are not mandated to have to actually teach that. And there has been some research from Pardell Histories that has shown there's a division where state schools are teaching an earlier history period and not teaching the actual period of the conflict, uh, whereas Catholic schools are predominantly teaching the period of the conflict versus the earlier period. So we have this segregation. But the vast majority of young people who leave the education system in Northern Ireland leave with no understanding or knowledge of the Good Friday Agreement or of the actual history of the conflict that impacts their lives. So I think that there's definitely opportunity. If you look at some of the stats, you'll see that young people who are aged 18 to 24 are actually the largest cohort of people who don't identify as unionist or nationalist. They are the others, because they are starting to see things from a different prism. And that's also down to social media, because they can see progressive societies, they can see other options, and they're looking outward more. So a more optimistic outlook, I think, than Sam this time. Thanks, Emma. Thanks very much for that, Emma. And thanks, Sam. And thanks, Emma and Sam, for coming down from the attic. Uh, And I do mean that sincerely. It's a long drive down. And... To come down here and sit here with us and have this conversation, we're very grateful. We really are very grateful. We're also grateful to Roman and Owen. And we're grateful because they do more than traditional media is doing. I mean, one of the funny things I thought was uh, out of everything that happened with the guys was somebody said, uh, well, traditional media can't afford to do investigative journalism. And I thought that that was really the funniest line out of it all. You know, a fraction of the budgets and you guys are turning out. Hang on, Noel Kelly said uh, why he wasn't checking the invoices was because it was a 380 million enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, guys. And I do think Shane is right. I do think what you do is going to grow. I think the the model that you have come up with is going to become more popular. It's investigative journalists and it's very basic. And I think it's going to become more popular with a younger generation of people. Lastly, and I'd like to say really thanks, Shane, for coming here tonight. I know this is your first time in front of an audience. I know this is the, the... I know you're nervous. I know you didn't know how you'd be received. But all of these people here are your friends. All of them are your friends. And thank you for having the guts and the balls to stand up and say, no, it's wrong. And thanks, Peter, for putting the whole group together. We'll leave it there, folks. Thank you so much, everybody who came tonight. Thank you to everybody who chips in and listens and likes and shares and does all the stuff. Do check out the second season of Shrapnel, because all of you were like, I saw like only half a dozen hands that were up saying they know what a loyalist is. Sam has his own podcast. It's called Shrapnel, and you've missed out on all of season one, so there's a lot to catch up on there for you. Thanks again, and I cannot say to you how much it's so Brilliant to see Shane do this tonight. Uh, and he's done it as a favour to Martin, so I'm going to give Martin a little bit of kudos, and I never do. Well done, Baldy. Thanks, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.